Tank, seen in Main Street of Flare, going on with large numbers of troops following it. RFC Observation Pilot, 3rd Corps, British 4th Army, the Somme, September 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 24, Somme, the Battle of Flare Corselet, Third Strike on the Somme, Part 2. Let's just get right to the front. Last episode, we covered the extreme left, where Reserve Army provided support, and then Fourth Army's left sector, where Third Corps attacked. This episode will begin on 4th Army's right, where 14th Corps was deployed from the area of Jeanchy to south of Luz Wood, known to Tommies on the ground as Lousy Wood. In this area, Jeanchy to Lousy Wood and all the way across the battlefront to Corselet, khaki-clad Tommies scrambled across the undulating shell holes and sprouting weeds of no man's land towards the lines up ahead of smoking holes that belonged to the German Sommkämpfer. Amongst them, but quickly falling behind, were the Mastodons, the tanks that had made it to the front line. These lumbering, gray, and camo-patterned beasts lurched towards the enemy as well, their hideously clanking tracks adding a new noise to the battlefield. Ahead of the attacking troops, churning the ground with dirt, smoke, and flame, the British creeping barrage plowed the Picardy ground. Above, British Royal Flying Corps airplanes buzzed overhead. Some of the planes dived to strafe the Germans on the ground with machine gun fire. Others worked at observing what was happening on the field below. Every pilot had to watch his altitude to avoid having his aircraft cut in half by streaking artillery shells. 14th Corps attack as a whole was largely a disappointment. 13 of the 15 tanks assigned didn't show up, either due to breaking down or ditching in the artillery-scoured battlefield. The bombardment here left many lanes untouched for those very tanks that didn't come, thus leaving entire sections of the line manned by Germans who would enfilade passing British troops. The Guards Division held the line at the edge of Jiangxi, and its attacking battalions were aimed at the villages of Les Boeufs and Morval, at least some 1,500 meters to the northeast, and behind several lines of trenches manned by the 5th Bavarian Division. Quick side notes here. The name Le Boeuf translates to the cattle, with boeuf corresponding to beef. And yes, the Bavarians were absorbing much of the impact of the BEF's attacks of 15th September. It was the Bavarian Second Corps that defended much of the line under attack. Like everywhere else, the Tommies went over the top at 6.20 a.m., heading off into a shell-plowed wasteland with almost no distinguishable features. Private Charles Cole of the 1st Coldstream Guards was one of the men in that first wave, and his account from Lynn MacDonald's psalm tells a harrowing tale. 
We manned the parapets at zero hour, waiting to go over and waiting for the tank, he said later. We heard the chunk, 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 then silence. The wretched tank never came. There was split-second timing. We couldn't wait for it, so we had to go over the top. We got cut to pieces. Eventually the tank got going and went over past us. The Germans ran for their lives. Couldn't make out what was firing at them. The tank did what it was supposed to have done, but too late. We lost hundreds and hundreds of men. Well, what was left of our three battalions didn't know what to do. We were all over the place in shell holes and bits of trench line. Anywhere there was cover. Then Colonel Campbell of the 3rd Battalion got up on the trench and he'd got a hunting horn. He stood right up there in full view and he blew the hunting horn and got us together. He stood on top of the trench. The Germans were firing everything at us, but they say God was in the trenches. If ever God was in the trenches, he was there then. Colonel Campbell won the Victoria Cross. He was only yards from me. I saw that VC-1. If ever a man deserved it, that man was Colonel Campbell. Colonel John Vaughn Campbell's actions that earned him the Victoria Cross were as wild as they sound above. The men of his third Coldstream Guards hadn't even covered a hundred yards before hundreds of them had been machine-gunned by Germans in the sunken road between Flair and Jeanchy. With leaderless men hugging the ground as bullets chewed up everything around them, the 1st Guards Brigade attack was quickly going to pieces. It was time for action. Colonel Campbell drew out the hunting horn that he always carried with him and put it to his lips. He blew one note from it, loud and clear to all the men around him. They understood it for what it was, a rallying call. It was the signal they needed, and it came to them from a man standing tall in no man's land and uncaring of the German bullets whizzing by him. The guardsmen rallied, as Campbell hoped. They rose and rushed the Flair Jeanchy Road. The Germans in it were wiped out. Coldstream guards kept going until they took the German first-line trenches, which they thought were already the enemy's third line. Colonel Campbell was with them and soon realized they were all still well short of where they needed to be. The Tommies pushed on all the way to the third line this time. Campbell wanted them to continue pushing towards Le Boeuf, but heavy machine gun fire halted any movement instantly. Colonel Campbell again sounded his horn, rallying his men under cover. Because the guard division's flank was in the air, the neighboring 6th division hadn't yet pulled up next to them. The colonel and his bedraggled group of Coldstream men were told to dig in where they were. Colonel Campbell would receive his Victoria Cross from His Majesty the King on the 14th of November, 1916, and Campbell would survive the war. Decades later, his son would die in May 1940 during the Second World War, and he himself would move on to the next life four years after that. To Campbell's and his troops left, the Grenadier Guards rushed at a strong point called the Triangle on trench maps. The Coldstreams were supposed to have taken it. In the confusion and mayhem, however, they had veered off course and left a gap in the attacking line. The Grenadiers were surprised when German machine guns scythed into their ranks from the Triangle, but they rallied and attacked it, subduing the enemy inside and capturing the place by late morning. The Grenadier guards took two-thirds casualties during this action. 
One of the Grenadier casualties was a Lieutenant Raymond Asquith, severely wounded on the battlefield and who died later in the day. An active politician just before the war, it was understood that young Raymond Starr was rising and that he was to go far. He was also the son of Herbert Henry Asquith, the man who was currently the United Kingdom's Prime Minister. The Prime Minister's son had been killed, leaving behind a wife and three young children. This war spared no one, and the psalm was now touching everyone, every class, every region of Great Britain. The Guards Division was forced to stop short of its objectives that day, having lost some 4,150 men and still in a precarious tactical situation. Adjacent units hadn't yet managed to make contact with men from the division, leaving dangerous gaps through which the Germans could come back and counterattack. To the Guards Division's right was the 6th Division, whose main goal was capturing a so far unbreakable redoubt known as the Quadrilateral. This redoubt was mentioned only in passing back in episode 20, and it deserves the description Lynn MacDonald wrote in her book, The Psalm. Quote, This strong point was a complex of entrenchments built round the old railway cutting. It was furnished with fortifications of iron and concrete, stalwart enough to defy an earthquake and skillfully sighted to command a field of fire which, in every direction, was absolute. Linked by a strongly held trench to another strong point, the Triangle, on the Jeanchy Ridge, which dominated the village of Jeanchy beyond, the quadrilateral was the kingpin and the key to the solid second line of the Germans' defenses, built as an impregnable insurance three miles behind the first. Their front line had long been shattered. The Germans were resolved to hold on to the second, end quote. To add to this description, the quadrilateral had not been bombarded with artillery during the last three days. It was a target of the tanks and thus left unplowed by shells. This was to be a tragic mistake. Three tanks were assigned to the 6th Division, but two of these beasts never made it. The third tank, C-22, commanded by a lieutenant, Basil Enrique, I'm saying his last name the Portuguese way, sorry, chugged up and pulled up along what it took to be the German front line. The following event is described differently in two different books, the aforementioned Psalm by Lynn MacDonald and Band of Brigands by Christy Campbell. In MacDonald's book, Lieutenant Enrique and his tank saw the trenches nearby packed with soldiers and took them to be the enemy. They weren't the enemy. These were the British frontline trenches, and these men were the 9th Norfolks. C-22 opened up with his machine guns, and the, quote, kill was enormous, end quote. It took an infantry captain who ran up and banged furiously on the side of the tank to get the tankers to stop shooting their own men. Christy Campbell relays a different version, one with new information gathered 80 years after the event. The 9th Norfolks weren't even in the front line yet. Enrique's tank showed up early 
and one of its gunners may have fired off some ammunition to test his machine gun. That captain did indeed bang on the side of the tank to get them to stop, but he noted 20 years later that no casualties had been caused, although the men were very much rattled by the event. Alerted by the noise, the Germans brought down artillery on the area. This caused the casualties, Campbell argues, not Lieutenant Enrique's. Nevertheless, two assaults were made on the quadrilateral with C-22 in support. But with the redoubt untouched by artillery, the Germans behind its defenses mowed down any British infantry that came their way. C-22 absorbed a number of German bullets until it had to back out due to low fuel. The attacks on the quadrilateral failed with heavy casualties, to no one's surprise. Lieutenant Enrique was later relieved of his duties and would never command a tank in battle again. The men of the 6th Division were forced to dig in wherever they were, far short of their objectives, amidst their comrades who lay dead and wounded around them. To their right, the 56th Division lay on the extreme right of the British 4th Army attack front, having been rebuilt after being shattered in front of Gom Corps on the 1st of July. 169th Brigade held the very end of the line, with the French on their right. The brigade's job was to secure Loup and Comble trenches and keep in contact with the Poilus next to them. With the support of one tank, the Tommies here went over the top at 6.20 a.m. and 1st and 2nd, London's troops entered Loop Trench between Lousy Wood and Comble Village shortly thereafter. Fighting continued all day as heavy enemy machine gun fire halted any progress. The lone tank was hit and immobilized, and the sweltering and suffering crew inside did its best to support by laying down streams of machine gun bullets for over five hours. This held the Germans back from counterattacking. Minimal progress was made in terms of territory gained. When night fell, parts of Comble Trench had been taken, as well as that of Loop Trench, but casualties here had been enormous as well. The 56th Division's other brigade in the line, the 167th, attacked towards Middle Cops. This was past Luz and Boulot Woods, commonly called Lousy and Bollocks by the British, and in the direction of Morval Village. With tank support, the Tommies reached Middle Cops, but were unable to clear the Germans out of Bollocks Wood. Fighting on the brigade's front was back and forth as German troops fought for every inch of ground. Middle Cops was occupied by late evening on the 15th, the 56th Division had taken another mauling on the Somme, this time losing another 4,500 men. For a British infantry division whose normal complement was roughly 12,000 men, losses of this scale were staggering. So we come to the end of 14th Corps' attack and now move to the center. This is where the 15th Corps was positioned, and this was where the day's greatest successes were achieved. From left to right, the divisions in line were the New Zealand Division, the 41st, and the 14th Divisions. Twelve of the
of the 17 tanks assigned to the Corps had made it to the front line and were going into the attack. The New Zealand Division, positioned between High Wood on its left and the ruins of Longueval on its right, was made up of many veterans of the Gallipoli Campaign of 1915, who had also just spent time in the River Lease sector getting acquainted with the Western Front. Having been in the front line for a few days already, the tough New Zealanders had spent time prepping for the upcoming attacks by digging saps towards the Germans. When the morning of the 15th came, the two battalions in front, the 2nd Auckland on the right and the 2nd Otago on the left, were only two to 400 yards away from the enemy front line. The New Zealanders' first objective was the infamous Switch Trench, which was up and past the crest of the high ground up ahead. The goal was to reach the third objective, which was to establish a defensive flank for the neighboring 41st Division as it pushed on Flair Village a couple of miles to the northeast. 0620 AM came and with it, the Kiwis went over the top in four waves of single lines. Each man was loaded for battle with his two protective masks, 200 rounds of rifle ammunition, two grenades, and empty sandbags tied to his belt at his back in order to quickly consolidate any captured trenches. He also carried his ground sheet, a sweater, canteen, and in his backpack was a day's worth of food. This was considered traveling light. The tanks assigned to them were on the way, but late when zero hour came. The men rushed towards their first objective in those confused first moments right after the British bombardment had lifted. They ran right towards the smoke and fire, working to keep close to the artillery as it lifted and shifted forward. Up ahead, the defending 15th and 8th Bavarians had taken a pounding. Machine gun fire barked and bit into their ranks from Crest Trench to their front. The waves paused as men knelt and returned fire. Crest Trench was taken fairly quickly despite this, with the New Zealanders rushing and the Germans retreating. Onward, they pushed towards the crest of the upward sloping ground and the switch line. To the New Zealanders' west, however, high wood had gone unplowed by the artillery prep, as we discussed last episode. Once the Bavarians and High Wood had subdued the Londoners attacking them directly, they turned their machine guns to the east and laid down a devastating enfilade fire. Casualties were heavy, especially in the Otago Battalion on the left. But in a mad rush, Switch Trench was reached, and a New Zealander later related the assault in a letter home, quoted here from Colonel H. Stewart's divisional history titled New Zealand Division, 1916-1919. through 1919. On the 15th of September, our platoon went over in the second wave, and I could see the Germans' heads above the trench firing at us when we got about halfway across. Even when we joined the first wave, I could see our ranks were pretty thin. We lay down and watched for the third and fourth wave to join us before rushing them. The four waves combined made up about as many as one of the original waves. While we were lying down waiting for the rush, Fritz was rattling away with his machine gun for all he was worth, and for a few seconds, he ripped up the ground about a yard in front of me. It gave me a bit of a fright, 
and I wasted no time in wriggling back a few yards. I also yelled out to the man on my left to go back, but when I looked at his face, I saw that he was dead. When we stood up and started to run, their fire slackened off a lot and soon stopped altogether. Half of them put their hands up and ran toward us. Some of them took to their heels, and a few of the fools kept firing at us. We all wanted to get them with the bayonet, but some of us were faster than others, and those behind were so anxious to do something that they started firing at the Huns at the risk of hitting their own men in front. I jumped into the Hun trench and found that it was so deep that I could not climb out the other side, so I pulled the dead Hun into a sitting position at the side of the trench, stood on his shoulders, and managed to climb out. When I think of it now, it seemed a horrible thing to do, and I am not quite sure whether he was dead or not, but I did not notice it in the excitement of the moment. I was chasing one fellow and almost had him, but I soon found I was not too safe as the fellows behind were firing, so I lay down, took steady aim, and shot him. Another poor beggar came stumbling towards me with a shower of bullets flying all around him. I knew that if I let him get too near me, I would stand a good chance of getting hit by one of our own bullets, as he was drawing a lot of fire, so I gave him a bullet in the chest when he was about 15 yards from me. They are the only two Huns I can claim to have put out of action, although I may have killed or wounded more that I did not see. Switch Trench fell, and the men of the New Zealand Division kept pushing forward. The tanks were now catching up and coming into the battle. One tank veered off, but three stuck together and started moving up Fish Alley to the west of Flare Village. As the tanks moved up the valley, they were called on. Captain Nixon's D-12 was met by Rifleman J.W. Dobson, who was coming to request assistance with a German-occupied farmhouse that was spitting out machine gun fire. The Germans had a pop at me once, Dobson said, and I got into a shell hole and waited and then got going again. I got inside the tank and guided it to where these machine guns were in a farm building, and the tank just pushed it over. Germans scattered in all directions. Another tank was called to assist with belts of uncut wire near the fourth objective. This one being Lieutenant Darby's D-10. Almost said lieutenant there, but I didn't. As it made its way towards the New Zealanders who lay flat under heavy enemy fire, Darby's beast was hit with German artillery and immobilized. A third tank, 2nd Lieutenant Pearsall's D-11, saw this happening and laboriously changed course to come in and simply crush the wire under its tracks. The New Zealanders poured in through the gap made by the beast and cleared the contested trench. This was exactly what the tanks were supposed to do. All of this happened and it was still mid-morning on the 15th. The Kiwis continued attacking the 4th objective trench line past Flare Village on the west side, but were stopped by heavy machine gun fire. Once they were down, the Germans launched a counterattack that stopped all forward progress for the time being. Later, the New Zealanders would play a part in capturing Flare. In the middle of the afternoon, the 15th Corps Commander Lieutenant General Horn gave the order to halt along the 3rd objective line and consolidate there. The New Zealand Division had done well, if at a brutally heavy price. The Kiwis had cut through several German trenches and advanced the line some 2,000 yards 
or over 2,500 men killed, wounded, or missing. On 15th Corps' right was the 14th Light Division, manning the southeast corner of Delville Wood. The division's objective was to push northeast and take Geert Corps. Have fun spelling that one. Attacking past Flair on its east side and supporting the 41st Division where possible. In their path lay a salient of interconnected trenches named the Brewery, because all of the component trenches were named Beer Trench, Ale Trench, Lager Trench, etc. This knot in the German lines was located between Delville Wood and Jean Chi's ruins. Two tanks were on hand to take the brewery, but one became stuck trying to drive through the nightmare of tree stumps that was Delville Wood. The remaining tank, D1, commanded by Captain Harold Mortimer, was to set off and attack the trench network before zero hour. Mortimer and his crew took off that morning at 5.15 a.m., becoming the first tank crew in history to ride into battle. Captain Mortimer guided his loud and uncomfortable beast as the shells came down on the Germans ahead. As it became light, he could get a sense of where he was, and he found himself at the brewery. D1 opened up with its guns, blasting at the German trenches and the troops, doubtless, scurrying for cover. Every trench that could be reached was doused with six-pounder shells and machine gun rounds. Once he was satisfied that a trench was cleared, Mortimer had his tank move up to the next one in the brewery. He kept creeping up the German lines, getting closer and closer to the falling shells of the British artillery bombardment. Behind him, two companies of the 6th King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry launched themselves over the top to seize on the Germans' disarray. Captain Mortimer kept pushing until his luck ran out, which was soon after the PBIs came in behind him. A shell came down and slammed into the tank's rear, immediately rendering it immobile. The shell was later determined to have been a British one. But Mortimer and his crew had taken out the brewery, clearing a path for the attacking infantry. The Tommies went over the top at zero hour in lines that, quote, might have been an ordinary peace maneuver on Laffin's Plain, end quote. Laffin's Plain was a training area near Aldershot, the home of the British Army. Resistance at first was light and scattered, as the artillery here had done its job well in obliterating the defending Germans. But as they went on camp capturing trench lines further behind the front line, the Germans fought back harder and harder. The tank that had ditched in Delville Wood, D5, under 2nd Lieutenant Blowers, was pulled out and came up to do its job. The British were now to the east of Flair, and the follow-on troops of the 9th KRRC came up against the German battery of 77mm guns. The guns launched shells at the oncoming Tommies over open sights, causing considerable casualties. One Sergeant Elderfield crept up to the guns as machine guns forced Germans' heads down, and he then picked off the gun crews one at a time. That's NCOs for you. A firefight developed over the guns, but the Germans managed to disable them before they were defeated. 
as Lieutenant Blowers and his tank negotiated the field to help another group of infantry, a second gun battery popped up and fired shells into D5. Two of the tank's eight-man crew were killed, and the tank had to be abandoned. Tank commanders were under strict orders not to let any tank fall into the hands of the Germans. So for blowers to leave his vehicle behind, that meant the British were the ones really in charge of the field. 14th Division overall successfully supported the 41st Division's attack on Flair, ending the day established on Bulls Road coming out of the village's northern end and in Serpentine Trench. This was a gain of about 2,000 yards and 1,000 yards, respectively. I know I probably don't need to say it, but for, for World War I, that is a good day. Even if the 14th Division had lost half of its attacking strength over the course of that day. So we come now to the center of the 15th Corps, the center of the whole 4th Army attack, really, and the most successful part of the day. This is the 41st Division's time to shine. The division was raised primarily from areas all over England like Bermondsey, Portsmouth, Wareside, and Wandsworth, and had been on the Western Front since the spring of 1916. Its main objectives were the village of Flair, sitting in a shallow valley two miles to the north of the division's current location at Longueval in Delville Wood, and Geard Trench between Flair and Geard Corps. A main German trench line ran just outside of Flair's southern limits, giving the village its importance. Geard Corps was part of the British 4th Army's 4th objective line. Ten tanks were to be in support for a three-pronged assault on Flair Village, to the east, to the west, and through the village itself. The fighting on 41st Division's front started brutally at zero hour, as told by a Lieutenant Uller from Bavarian Infantry Regiment 14 in Jack Sheldon's The German Army on the Somme. About 5.45 a.m., the British occupied trenches pushed forward from Delville Wood, both sides of the Longueval Flare Road. With our rifle and machine gun fire, we forced them to move back to their main trenches. About 7 a.m., the British advanced from Delville Wood in the hollow to the left, the east, of the Flare Longueval Road. They advanced in columns four to five men wide, with five to ten paces between the columns, each of which was about 80 men strong. The assault was accompanied by three tanks, one of which ditched, attempting to cross the road. Once the attack had closed to 200 meters range, British destructive fire came down and utterly smashed the company sector. The attack was spotted the instant it left the wood, and from that moment until the British troops broke into the position, an uninterrupted series of signal flares was fired, calling for defensive fire, but none came because there were only 45 men left who were still able to fight and to defend a 400-meter company frontage, I pulled back, along with every other part of the company who made it in time, to the hill to the right, west, of the Flair Longueval Road and brought down enfilade fire on the advancing enemy. 
Simultaneously, I sent back to the second line for support. I remained, together with some elements of 12th Company, Bavarian Infantry Regiment 9, on the hill until I was deeply outflanked on either side and was afraid that I should be cut off. At this moment, I was also wounded in the shoulder. I gave the order to pull back to flare, my men fighting briefly from the second line in between the second and third lines as they withdrew. I personally went back to Flair to fetch support. Pulling back further, I passed a battery of 210mm guns and geared corps who had no knowledge of the attack. Because nobody was outside the dugouts, I raised the alarm. In answer to my question why the battery was not firing, I received the reply that there were no orders because all the telephone links were destroyed. In my opinion, if artillery defensive fire had come down at the right moment, the enemy attack would have been beaten back with heavy casualties. First waves of attacking Tommies were hit hard with heavy machine gun fire as they pushed towards Flair. Sergeant Norman Carmichael, an NCO in the 21st King's Royal Rifle Corps, watched in horror as part of his company was destroyed before his very eyes. I kept an anxious eye on Kid's section, and sure enough, before they had gone very far, one of those confounded shells landed right in their midst, blowing them down like nine pins. I distinctly saw poor Kid throw up his arms, and then I knew that lovable, generous soul, whom I had known since the very beginning at Helmsley, had gone west. There were only two or three survivors in the section, and those very gallant fellows dragged the bodies of their killed and wounded comrades out of the path of the oncoming tank, and then went on. The men of the 21st KRRC, along with others from the Royal West Surreys, the Royal Fusiliers, the 15th Hampshires, the Royal West Kents, and the 12th East Surreys, dashed across Flare Valley to get to the ruins of the village. The survivors who reached the German trench line just outside the southern approach to Flair found a field of uncut barbed wire that spelled doom for any hope of a successful attack. Where were the tanks? Right behind them. Clanking, dipping, smashing, jolting, and digging its way across the valley floor was Lieutenant Stuart Hasty and his crew inside tank D-17, nicknamed Dinnekin. Dinnekin, best as far as I can tell, is a take on Scottish dialect. I Dinnekin means roughly, I don't know. The good lieutenant and his crew were about to show the world just what tanks could do. But real quick before that, we've talked about the tanks, but what about their crews? What was it like to be a tanker in those early beasts? In short, it was pretty horrible. The British Mark I tank had a crew of eight men. Commander, two drivers, one for the driving and one for the brakes. Two gearsmen to manually and very painfully change the transmission gears. And four gunners for the two six-pounder guns and Vickers machine guns. Inside the tank, the crew compartment was shared with the monstrous engine that sat in the middle. The engine was a red-hot beast with almost no safety covers, and with a poor exhaust and ventilation system, it quickly filled the crew space with 
toxic carbon monoxide fumes that frequently caused crew members and even entire crews to vomit or pass out inside. Temperatures inside the tank were generally around at least 100 degrees. The noise inside the tank was unimaginably loud, and driving directions and gear shift demands had to be made by banging on the engine as hard as possible. The driver and commander had extremely limited views through their forward-facing vision periscopes, and the gunners had a little bit of light and even more precious air around their gun emplacements. The gearsmen were just screwed, having to stand in the darkness and fumes. Each man had his protective mask strapped to his body, but tankers were also issued with leather and chainmail helmets that protected their heads and faces from spalling, bits of metal that peeled off from the inside of the tank when it was hit by fire outside. It was all like something out of a steampunk horror movie. So in these conditions, Lieutenant Hasty and the men of Dinikin now pulled up to the wire outside Flare. Having somehow communicated his intentions to his crew, Hasty's tank bucked, squealed a painful metallic screech as gears smashed together and then lurched forward. Tommy's nearby stayed low, doing everything possible to avoid being hit. Dinikin approached the wire as German machine gun bullets sparked and pinged off its sides. The 28-ton gray-tracked mastodon kept inching closer and closer to the wire until it was at it, and it kept going. Dinikin's tracks crushed and cut through the wire entanglements with hardly a thought. The tank kept moving, moving right through the wire until its crew could see they were on top of a German trench. Here, the tank stopped. Its machine guns now opened up, mercilessly enfilading the Germans still crouching in the trenches. In short order, the trenches were left full of dead and wounded, and Dinikin lurched forward again. It was driving right down the main street into Flare, as battered and shell-scoured as the road was. Behind Hasty's tank, the Tommies now rose and fell in behind the tank, walking through the path it had cleared in the barbed wire. Dinikin clanked and screeched into flares. Here and there, streams of machine gun fire shot out from ruined houses, cellar holes, from behind low walls and shell holes. Dinikin's gunners engaged anything that shot at them, blasting 57mm rounds into houses and bringing them down on their German defenders. Machine gun fire streamed out of the tank and into enemy positions, silencing them quickly. The tank continued on into the village, a moving platform of unbeatable destruction and death. Behind in its wake, the mishmash of Tommies fanned out and began clearing the village. Germans surrendered by the dozen, stunned by the firestorm the tank had just put out. As the clearing began from the south, New Zealanders from the left crashed into Flare on its western side, shooting down anything that moved or lurked in the ruins. The Germans were either killed, surrendered, or were like Las Unsgehen, and they popped smoke. Flair village was secured. The German army wasn't that easy, though. To the east of Flair, fighting raged, and we'll get to it in a moment. Inside Flair, we need to finish Dinikin's amazing Valkyrie ride through the ruins. The Germans responded to the fall of Flair 
by sighting in on it with all of the available artillery in the local area. They hit the ruins on the Tommies inside it with every HE round they had. A scream of incoming shells told everyone to get down and get small, and within a few minutes, parties of British troops were pulling back. Others stayed where they were, but the overall impression given was that the Brits had all retreated. Lieutenant Hastie and his crew had continued on through the village, blasting and slaying any Germans they could find. The crew detected that the engine wasn't holding up well under the battle strain, and as the fight wore on, it didn't get any better. Dinikin's crew inside the tank with all of the noise had kept going on and kicking ass all the way. But with engine trouble and now the German shells pummeling everything around them, Hasty discovered that he and his men were out past the infantry and alone in unknown conditions. They could be surrounded by Germans. And with the engine trouble, the young officer remembered his orders. Under no circumstances could he let the tank fall into enemy hands. Up ahead was a village square, today known as La Place des Britanniques, and here Hasty ordered his crew to turn the tank around. It had been a hell of a run, and it had shown what the tank could do. Hasty and his crew had single-handedly turned the tide of the battle for flair, and the infantry had come in after Dinikin to clear out what the tank had shaken up. Hasty limped his tank back down out of the village and into Flair Valley. He got it to the north side of an embankment called the Rideau de Filois in the middle of the valley. And here, he parked the tank behind the bank with its guns facing north. The tank's engine then gave up the ghost. East of Flair, battle continued. Tank D6, named Die Hard, and commanded by one second lieutenant Bruce Willis, Sorry, I couldn't resist. It, the lieutenant's name was Leg. D6 had engaged the German 77mm guns that had taken out Lieutenant Blower's D5 tank. Second Lieutenant Leg, who had been a corporal just a few months ago and, and who was completely new to the tanks, maneuvered on the gun battery. But Leg and his crew were up against a couple of batteries, not one. Diehard's gunner sighted on one of the guns and hit it with a six-pounder shell, destroying it. But the other German guns were ready to fire, and they immediately did so. D6 was hit and hit bad, with one crew member killed inside the vehicle. As Lieutenant Leg and his crew exited from the now-burning tank, the Germans opened up with rifle and machine gun fire. Leg and two others were killed instantly. Three others got away and back to British lines. The eighth man was captured. Again, in a move as much about battlefield honor as it was about hygiene and sanitary precautions, the Germans later buried Leg and his men by the tank. Leg's personal papers were collected, routed through the International Red Cross, and eventually were reunited with his family in England. In the remaining fighting on the Somme, Leg and his men's graves were destroyed, and today their names are among the other names of the 73,000 missing of the Somme on the Tietval Memorial. Flair had been taken, but Geard Trench near Geard Corps had not. German fire was too heavy, and all the attacking units were exhausted. 
General Rawlinson had put all of his attacking units into the strike so as to have more weight in the initial thrust. The flip side to that was that there were now no reserves on hand to press any advantages. And there were some to be had. The Germans had taken devastating losses, and their front line lay shattered. Adequate reserves were nowhere near the area, and there wasn't much to count on towards holding back a second assault. But the German army had absorbed the attacks and worn out the British and their Dominion forces. There had been no great breakthrough. The cavalry would not be charging up to capture Bapome. The German third line was still intact as well. German morale had taken a devastating hit as well, but the men, that living wall of defense for the fatherland, had held themselves together. The British 4th Army had seen successes, though. 9,000 yards of the enemy's first defense line had been taken, as well as 4,000 yards of the second line. High Wood and the Switch Line had finally fallen. Six square miles of ground had been captured in one day, twice as much as what had been seized at so heavy a price on the 1st of July. The 4th Army if not on the edge of a shattering victory, was ready to continue the fight and now take it to the shaky German third line. It was a day of mixed success and disappointment, and this is best showcased with the tanks. At Flair, the world was introduced to the potential that the tanks had, a potential that went even beyond infantry support. But so many of them had also broken down or gotten stuck that their potential was missed. A fact often missed or overlooked by the introduction of the tanks on the 15th of September is the number of British casualties taken that day. Rawlinson, Haig, and the rest of the upper British Army Command structure preferred it this way. But the number for the day was 29,000 about half the number lost on the 1st of July. It was another staggering figure in what had long since been recognized as a grinding bloodbath. Blame for the casualties can be given to the flaws in General Rawlinson's ultimate plans. The preparatory artillery fires had been diluted on Haig's insistence and consequently didn't have the weight of shell per yard needed to pulverize the German defenders. The tank lanes left untouched by the artillery were a first-time and hopefully last-time mistake. But mostly, the British command didn't yet fully realize how crucial the proper employment and use of artillery on this modern battlefield was. They were beginning to see it, but they weren't there yet. On the night of the 15th, it began to rain on the Somme front, diluting and washing the pools of blood to be found everywhere one looked. The shell-torn battlefields turned into a muddy morass, instantly slowing movement to a dangerously slow crawl. A significant weather change had arrived with that rain. The high point of the British big push on the Somme had been reached. All right. So let's leave it there for now. If you have enjoyed this episode and the hopefully adequate research that has gone into this and other episodes, 
please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash battles of the first world war podcast. Patrons there get transcripts for each episode as well as early access to the episodes. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. You can also go through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War Podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.